God, Father, we thank you for your goodness and for your grace, your, your pleasure that you pour out on us as we walk with you, as we follow your son Jesus, as we follow the lead of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God, I thank you that uh, you've given us a right relationship with yourself. And as we're going to see today, Lord, uh, all stemming back to the revealing of your son Christ and what he has done for us. And so, God, I pray that as we uh, embark on our worship now, that you might just be a comfort to the Cooper family as they uh, are processing, obviously, the death of their father and for Liz, her husband. And, God, we pray that as we have a service for Guy on Wednesday, that, Lord, it would truly be one that brings honor to you and comfort to your people. Thank you, God, for the hope, the real living hope of eternal life that we have because of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray now as we turn to your word that you bless us, make us glad that we came here to your house, and give us wisdom and discernment, I pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So as I mentioned before I prayed, today is Palm Sunday, the day that Christians celebrate the beginning of Jesus' last week before his death and resurrection. And as I was thinking about it this week, I thought, you know, just about anybody and everybody who's been around the church block more than once knows the story of Palm Sunday, right? I mean, all you had to do was go to Sunday school maybe three or four times a year when you were a kid, make those little palm leaves, and you'd understand Palm Sunday. And we even had the story read for you earlier by our kids in case you didn't get it. Jesus is now about 33 years old. He's finally come to Jerusalem for the culmination of his uh, earthly ministry. And Jerusalem is filled with people this week because it's the annual Passover celebration for the Jews. And so Jesus rides into town on a young donkey, which would have been a sign of royalty back then, complete with his followers placing their outer garments and some branches. We read Matthew, but John tells us that they were palm branches along the road as Jesus rides into town. And as all this is going on, they're shouting, and I quote, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Now again, if you're not a church person, you have no idea what the word Hosanna means, right? Like who uses that word today? But Hosanna comes from the Hebrew and it simply means save I pray. And when you combine this with that phrase the son of David, it's simply the crowd's way of recognizing Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah come to restore the Jewish people to their rightful place of leadership and rulership in Israel at that time. In other words, the crowd expected Jesus now to bring them back to the glory days when Solomon and David and all the kings reigned in Israel. And just so that we all get this, Matthew makes sure that we know that this took place to fulfill what Zechariah the prophet predicted hundreds of years before in Zechariah 9 verse 9 in which he said that someday God's Messiah would come as a king riding on a young donkey or colt. That's the story of Palm Sunday. Jesus finally rides into Jerusalem, declares himself the long-awaited Messiah, come to deliver and save his people. That's the story. And if you've ever heard a Palm Sunday sermon before, and I've preached 11 of them, this is my 12th Palm Sunday sermon. You all have only been suggested or subjected about three or four of them, but I've done 11. If you've ever heard a Palm Sunday sermon, you know that the main point that we pastors like to get across is that as much as the crowds expected Jesus to physically and materially take over Jerusalem and Israel at that time, that God and Jesus had another plan, right? 
Their plan was for Jesus to give His life through the crucifixion so that people could be forgiven of their sin and enter into an eternal spiritual relationship with Almighty God. In other words, the crowds expected a physical material takeover, but Jesus was all about a spiritual takeover through His atoning death for our sins. He came to bring us back to God. That's the main takeaway of Palm Sunday. And again, if you've ever heard a Palm Sunday sermon, that's usually what we like to get across. And yet, because I've made that point, did I say 11 times now for the last 11 years, and because you all are a rather sophisticated church, I thought, well, let's establish that point, and then let me share with you something else that has hit me over the last couple of years as I have read and reread this Palm Sunday story. And I want to point out something that I think is also very relevant in this story about the way that you and I approach and follow Jesus. And here's what hit me, folks, as I was rereading this story again this week. And that is that in addition to all this spiritual versus material misunderstanding that was going on back then, that on a much simpler level, what Jesus was doing was also very visible, open, and public. In other words, he was visibly, openly, and publicly declaring who he is, his leadership and rulership in our lives as he came in to Jerusalem. And you're saying, what do you mean? Well, very similar to when Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 32, that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And very similar to what he said in Matthew 5, when he said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill should not be hidden in the same way. Let your light shine before others. I think that one of the corollary messages of Palm Sunday is that just as Jesus entered into Jerusalem in a public, open, lifted up kind of way, that you and I also then need to continue to lift him up and make him known as we enter into the public arena as well. In other words, what has hit me about Palm Sunday is that Jesus entered publicly into Jerusalem, as we're going to see, in one of the most busiest times of the entire year. And everything he did during this week, except for the Last Supper, was a very public type of thing. And so just as Jesus entered into the public arena, that first Palm Sunday, declaring some things about who he is and why he came, I believe that we also, 2,000 years later, need to continue to enter our public arena, life likewise lifting him up and making certain things known about him publicly. And so let me show you what I mean from Matthew's telling of this account here. If you brought a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 21. And I want you to look at how Matthew describes Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Look again at verse 5. It was read for you earlier as Matthew quotes Zechariah 9, verse 9. This is very interesting. He says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And so Matthew makes it clear through Zechariah, that Jesus is coming to you. Do you see that there? I highlighted it for you. That he is coming to you. He's entering the public arena and coming into the big city. And don't forget, folks, that this was the most congested time of the year for Palestine back then because of the Passover celebration in already the most congested city, Jerusalem. In fact, scholars estimate from historical documents at that time that Jerusalem, which normally had about 30,000 people in it, 
would swell to about 180,000 people during the Passover celebration. I mean, that's six times its normal size that Jerusalem was the week that Jesus entered into it. And so simply note that Jesus couldn't have picked a more public time and a more public location to enter into the public arena than Passover week in Jerusalem. And then, as you're chewing on that, look at verse 9. It says, and the crowds, that's really important, the crowds went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he, here it is again, who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. So simply note that there were lots of crowds during this triumphal entry and Jesus came to these crowds. Interesting. He entered into their public arena. And we know from the Gospel of Matthew as a whole that there are actually two kinds of crowds that Jesus was interacting with, at least here. Matthew chapter 20, verse 29 tells us that there was a large crowd of already convinced followers that had been following him since Jericho. These were the people who already believed that he was who he said he was. That's the first crowd. But then Matthew 21, verse 10 tells us that there was another crowd of not yet convinced people, the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people who were already in Jerusalem for the Passover. And they were also interested but were not yet convinced. So you got big crowds of multiple varieties, kind of like in Phoenix here today. And Jesus came to these crowds on Palm Sunday. He entered in the most visible and congested way that he could into the public arena. And folks, I think that there's something to all of this. Namely, that Palm Sunday is not just about Jesus declaring some great and life-changing realities, his long-awaited victory over sin and death, though that is what Palm Sunday is about. But what I need you to see this year is that he did so in a very public fashion, coming to where the crowds were and entering into their world. He went to them. He entered the public arena. And what was the result of all of this? It tells us in verse 10. This is so cool. Look up here on the screen. It says, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city, here it is, was stirred up, saying, Who is this? In other words, by Jesus entering into their lives in this public ways, it, way, it caused the people to be shaken in their worldview, thus turning their attention more to Jesus and even asking the question, Who is this? You know, it's fascinating. That word shaken or stirred up here is actually one Greek word in the original Greek that Matthew wrote his gospel in. And it literally means to be disturbed, or as I said earlier, to be shaken. It's the same word that Matthew would use a few chapters later in chapter 27, verse 51, to describe the physical ground shaking during Jesus' death on a cross when the veil was torn. You guys remember that? When it said the ground actually shook. Same word that Matthew's using here to describe what happened to the people when Jesus entered in the triumphal entry. And so the people are in verse 10 were literally shaken to the core by the presence of Jesus in their lives and it even led them to re-examine their life and how Jesus might fit into it. And so the question that I want you and I to wrestle with as we add all this up is what does this mean for you and me today? In other words, I think you see where I'm going. In what ways are you and I then to enter into the public arena and what ways are we to make Jesus known to those around us? 
three things I want to suggest to you today. Three ways, as far as I see it, that you and I can and should enter into our public arena today and lift Jesus up so that other people might be drawn to him. Three challenges that I believe that this story and the New Testament as a whole gives us. And here is the first one. And that is that we enter into the public arena with Jesus' righteousness and morality. It's true. You're going to see it in black and white here. We enter into the public arena making sure that we, just like Jesus, are emulating God's righteousness and morality. So check this out, folks. This is fascinating. You're going to learn something today you probably never knew. In the passage that we just looked at a second ago, where in verse 5, Matthew quotes from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, he actually truncated the original prophecy just a little bit and didn't give us the entire verse. He actually does that. And and only when you read the commentaries or if you go back and look at it yourself and do the math can you figure this out. In a very real way, Matthew has given us a Cliff Notes version of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 here in his gospel. And we don't know why. I mean, maybe what he quoted was all that he could remember. I mean, people memorized the Bible back then and maybe that's what he remembered. Or maybe he just wanted to use the portion that he did to make his point. And when he did point over, that's all I'm going to quote. But for whatever reason, it's important for you and I to look at the original prophecy in Zechariah to fully get what God intended in predicting that Jesus was going to ride into town entering the public arena. And so look in your own Bible or up here on the screen at the original prophecy given about Jesus riding into the public arena in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 from the Old Testament. And I've highlighted to make it really easy for you, the portions that Matthew left out. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So as you can see, Matthew only truncated it a little. He only left out that that middle portion there. But do you see what I see? In the original prophecy, it makes clear that when Jesus would enter the public arena, two key things that he would bring with him are righteousness and salvation. And as we've already established, most Palm Sunday sermons recognize the salvation part. We make that really clear, as we should. But don't miss this morning the righteousness part as well. That when Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day, he was riding in kind of in a saddlebag with God's righteousness in tow as well. And he was representing God's righteousness. It's fascinating. That word righteous here is the Hebrew word sadiq. And it simply connotes a person, get this, who lives his or her life by God's standards, by God's moral imperatives as found in his word. And so check this out. In describing God himself and using this exact same Hebrew word, look at Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. It says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And so Jesus came into Jerusalem, riding into town, entering the public arena, all the while touting The value of righteousness making clear that God is holy and good and that all his people are to be holy and good as well. And all I know, folks, is that it's high time that God's people stop living morally hypocritical lives 
and begin entering the public arena with moral actions that back up our spiritual words. Amen? I mean, that's exactly what I believe this text is communicating to us. Because if we don't do this, if we don't follow Jesus and how he drove into Jerusalem in a righteous kind of way, then we don't have much integrity to back up the spiritual claims that we are making. I love it. Listen to how Helmut Thielicke, a wonderful old German theologian, once said it. This is great. Look up here on the screen. He says, A salty pagan, full of the juices of life, is a hundred times dearer to God and also far more attractive to men than a scribe who knows his Bible, but in whom none of this results in repentance, action, and above all, death of the self. He says, A terrible curse hangs over over the know-it-all who does nothing. And I think he's right. And I think that Palm Sunday contains a message in which you and I must remember that as we enter the public arena, and by the way, if you've noticed, I'm assuming that we enter the public arena. I mean, we all do. We shop at Kirlin. We have a job down at ASU. We talk to our neighbors and go to civic and social events. So it's assumed that we're all in the public arena here. I mean, this is Scottsdale. This is America. We live here. We're involved in it. And as we are in the public arena, as followers of Jesus, I simply need you to see that as you represent him morally, folks are going to be drawn more to him. But the opposite is also true, that if you don't represent him morally, then they're going to be repelled and they're going to go further away from him. And before I move on, let me just make one point really clear, because I know how some of you think. I hope you know I am not talking about being more holier than thou. Give me a head nod that you guys get that. You know me well enough by now. I'm not talking about looking down on on others as you flout your own righteousness. I'm not talking about judging others who aren't quite as far along as you are in getting your life to a stable track. No, I'm talking about simply a humble, self-effacing, other-centered, God-pleasing lifestyle based on what you and I know to be true from His Word. That's what we're talking about here. I was with Kimmel the other night. We were just convincing about stuff at the church and his two weeks of preaching. And I shared with him where I was going tonight or today. And I, and I was sharing about, you know, entering into Jerusalem with righteousness and the story. And Tim always sees things in the text that you never find in the commentators. He always sees things in the text that, like, nobody else thinks of, but I, just make me laugh and are true. And he said, isn't it interesting, Jamie, as you make that point, that though all the commentators point out that Jesus rode into Jerusalem royally because he was on a donkey and most people would walk and, and that they were shouting, Hosanna in the highest, blessed he who's come in his name and Lord. He said he really didn't go in, though, in the arrogant, prideful Roman royal way, which would have included military and instruments and being carried on one of those chariot-like things and chariots going in and before him. He said there's no pomp and circumstance. No, Jesus' royal way of entering Jerusalem was humbly on a donkey. And then Tim went on and on, as you know what he can do. He said he didn't even have a stallion. He didn't even have a horse. And he's going on and on about all the things, you know, that, that, that Jesus could have done to ride into town kind of touting who he really was. And I think that's a great point. That as Jesus does ride in righteous, riding on a donkey, it's also very humble. It's very self-effacing. It's not very judgmental in the sense of how people might feel judged. It's him coming in town as God, even as God's son, saying, Here I am, righteous and holy, and as we're going to see, I'm here for you. 
Jesus rode into town. He entered the public arena with righteousness. And so as you and I enter into town, let's not be afraid to let our light shine. Business people, let's not be afraid to enter the public arena with integrity and honesty. Teachers, let's not be afraid to enter the public arena with kindness and love. Students, let's not be afraid to enter the public arena as ones who don't plagiarize. And all Christians, let's not be afraid to enter the public arena standing up for what is right and good in a culture that has got things backwards. You and I have an opportunity to do that as ones who are followers of Jesus entering the public arena. And it's the first thing Palm Sunday here shows us. Now, once we've established this, I want you to notice me a second key way that we can lift up Christ in the public arena. And you're going to like this too. And that is that we enter the public arena with Jesus' truth. Right? We enter the public arena with Jesus' truth. And the reason that we know this is the case, folks, is because all throughout Jesus' last week here, I mean from the moment that he entered into town, he was all about helping others know and see the truth. I had fun with this this week. Bob and Mary, you're going to love this. I mean, I, I just love studying the Bible, so I'm, I'm, I'm reading the end of Matthew and the end of John and all that, thinking, you know, like, since Jesus rode into town, like, in what areas and in what ways did he enter in with truth? And I thought of three groups. First, the disciples and the crowds. I mean, he, he taught them about the last days. He taught them how to love and serve others. He taught them about God's character. He taught them about the importance of the Holy Spirit. I mean, just in one week, Jesus championed the truth of who God is in the public arena with his disciples and his followers. And then the second group Jesus confronted with the truth were the Pharisees and the scribes. I mean, like numerous encounters that week in which he put truth before the religious leaders of his day. And then not stopping there, he dialogued with a third group, and that were the political leaders of his day over truth. That famous interaction with Pilate, in which Pilate eventually even asked Jesus, what is truth? I mean, don't miss this, folks. Jesus entering the public arena was all about truth, helping others discover truth about God themselves and this world around them. It was helping them get in touch with reality, the reality of why we are here and what our purpose is on planet Earth. As Jesus would so famously say, and this is why truth is so important, look up here on the screen, John 8, 32, and you will know the truth and say it with me, and the truth will set you free. That was Jesus' whole point, is that if we can get people in line with God's truth, just to get on board with His truth, on what He says about who we are and all of our createdness and fallenness, who God is and all of His redemption, who each other are as the church, as brothers and sisters in Christ, who this world is as lost ones who need to come back to Him. If we can all get on the same page with that truth, that truth is going to set us free. It has the capacity to center us on what is real and right. And in the end, it sets us free to know God, love other people, and become all that we were meant to be. And so in keeping with our focus this Palm Sunday, the obvious call for you and me is to likewise champion God's truth as we enter our public arena Monday through Saturday. Simply to realize that as we ride into town, we ride as truth bearers just by the nature of being his followers, still finding ourselves in this world. You know, as I was uh, reading some articles this week just on truth and the very nature of truth, I ran across an article about a gal whom I had not heard of yet. You're going to hear of her now by the name of Holly Ordway. 
She's got a very interesting story. She's a professor at a college over in California here. She's got a earned PhD from out east, a very, very bright gal, very intellectual. And for the first 30 so years of her life, she was not raised in any type of Christian home at all. She was an atheist who thought Christianity was at best historically historical. Christianity was an historical curiosity, and at worst, it was a blemish on modern civilization. And so for the very first early years of her life, she says, and I quote, I never said a prayer, I never went to church, my exposure to Christianity was minimal, and the few encounters with Christians I had were televangelists and people talking about hellfire and damnation. And so eventually she concluded that the Bible was a collection of folk tales and myths no different from stories of Zeus and Cinderella. As she says by her mid-twenties, I was a college professor, logical, intellectual, rational, and an atheist. And that was her story. But around her late twenties, early thirties, she started to get an itch. Many of us know what that's about. And she was starting to realize that her naturalistic explanations of the universe were not as completely adequate as they were billed as. In other words, when it came to things like where we came from, why we're here, what our purpose were in life, she found that naturalism came up short in giving her a satisfying answer to those questions. And so she started to seek more out the Christian truth claim. And in seeking, isn't it interesting, she found a person that she really respected intellectually, morally, and relationally, and this person became, as she says, her mentor. And over the course of a few years, this person patiently guided her through an exploration of God's truth, what it says, exposing her to the writings of people like J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig, which if you are familiar with the Christian intellectual scene, are people that we suggest that you read. And after a few years, she committed herself to Christ. As she says, my intellectual pride was broken. I was humbled by God's goodness. I began to see myself as a sinner, and I accepted Jesus Christ. And it was at this point, as you can imagine, that a whole new world has now opened up to her. She argues that Christian theism actually gives us an adequate, if not more than adequate, explanation of all the things of this universe, including how we got here, why we're here, what's our purpose, and where we are going. And then listen to how she wraps this up, offering some advice to those who might approach atheists today. She said, really, it doesn't matter whether we like Christianity or not. What matters is, is it true? That approach may not resonate with everyone, but it's what opened the door for me. See, I think there's a lot of people like Holly out there today, especially a lot of our young people, by the way, that are attending ASU right now, or my daughter is, NAU. There's a lot of young people in today's culture that do want to know what is true, and yet they aren't buying in to just all the old definitions of truth. They want truth packaged in a way that they can understand it, wrestle with it, look at it today. And yet that's exactly why Jesus rode into Jerusalem. He rode in to discuss truth with people, as somebody did with Holly, to patiently, through years of time, work with them on what truth is and why the truth of God is so important. I love how C.S. Lewis, probably one of the greatest champions of truth from the last century, says it in his classic book, Mere Christianity. Look up here on the screen. This is great. He says, God is no fonder of intellectual slackers than any other slackers. 
If you are thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you that you are embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you, brains and all. And I think he's right. I I think that's exactly true. God doesn't like intellectual slackers. That should scare some of us for evangelical Christianity today. Because we tend to be so experience-oriented, which is a good thing, but we forget that at the end of the day, though truth alone won't convince somebody to become a Christian, as for Holly, without some adequate truthful explanations, she wasn't even in the door. She wasn't even ready to see her life through God's lens. And so church, don't ever forget, as you and I ride into our own Jerusalem, which we do every day, we ride with truth. And we need to be prepared to give adequate answers to the questions that people have. It's what Jesus did. It's what we do. And so we enter the public arena with Jesus' righteousness. We enter with his truth. And then notice thirdly and finally that in following Jesus, we enter the public arena with his love and his grace. We enter the public arena with his love and grace. And here's what I don't want you to miss, folks. Now listen to this. Not only is this aspect of following Jesus into the public arena the most obvious, but I'm going to end this morning by suggesting to you it's the most important. It's the most obvious, and also it's the most important. What do I mean by that? Well, certainly it's the most obvious. I mean, from the moment Jesus rode into town, he taught about the two great commandments, which are to love God and love your neighbors. He washed the disciples' feet in an act of humble service and taught them a new command to love each other. He went to the cross in the most profound act of grace ever to hit humankind, the kind of grace that would eternally forgive us and bring us into a right relationship with God. And then he rose again to show his victory over death and sin. And then even before he ascended into heaven, what did he do? He forgave Peter and restored Peter for denying him. So like you'd have to be completely dense to miss the fact that core to Jesus' entering into the public arena was to show and give love and grace to a lost and hurting world. I mean, it's so very obvious. But what I also need you to see as well is that it's also the most important thing. And what I mean by that is that if all you do is ride into town with righteousness and truth in your saddlebag and yet have no love and grace then I promise you, you will become a hard-nosed legalist who is really into dead doctrine. That's what you will become. If you ride into town and you miss the love and grace aspect of it, and all you do is say a hearty amen to righteousness and truth, which some Christians tend to do, you're going to be a hard-nosed legalist who lives your life by a bunch of do's and don'ts, who's really into doctrine, but at the end it's dead doctrine because it has no life when it comes to his love and his grace. That's what I need you to see. And some of you are saying, well, is that really biblical? Absolutely. In fact, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3 and then 13. You know, the sad thing about this passage, as I've said before, is that we tend to read it in weddings and we put it on Hallmark cards and we say, isn't it cute? And I read 1 Corinthians 13 and I think it's not cute at all. It's gritty, it's rough, it's tumble, it's trying to tell us something extremely important about our Christian lives. Listen to what it says. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And so, folks, you can have all knowledge and truth. You can have immense faith. You can have personal power. You can have sacrificial giving. You can have wonderful, spiritual, ecstatic experiences with God. But if love is missing as you ride into town, you got nothing. Why? Because love and grace are the most important thing. As Galatians 5, 6 says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Please see this, church. We do ride into town with righteousness, absolutely. We do ride into town with truth. we got to do it. But if we don't wrap both our righteousness and our truth in the packaging of God's grace, then we've simply engaged in an adventure in missing the point. And that's why I've said that love and grace is not only the most obvious thing Jesus brought with him to the public arena, but it's the most important thing. Because grace and love are what change us. And they change others far more than mere morality or truth could. Grace is the missing ingredient that we just looked at, that we're looking at all year, that brings truth and morality together into a relational format in which we can know God and experience His salvation. And here's what you and I know. And that is that whenever we've experienced grace, whether it's on a human level or a divine level, we've been changed. Amen? We've been changed. And you could tell me story after story about it. I ran across a story this week, and I, and I think there's been enough time since the George W. Bush era to give an illustration about his life. Am I right? Uh, even if you say no, I'm going to do it anyways. And, uh, and, and this is not a partisan illustration. It's just a powerful illustration of something that happened between Bush and one of his staff people that communicates grace. In 2001, Tim, now how do you say his last name? Tim Goglein? Is that who he was? You guys know who he is? All right, anyways, Tim Goglein was running the White House Office of Public Liaison. The White House Office of Public Liaison. And in so doing, this gave him daily access to President Bush, and for seven years, he ran the White House Office of Public Liaison. And during that time, he wrote dozens of articles, well-written pieces, about the Bush era and the Bush policy for the press and for the public. And yet, in February of 2008, a well-known blogger uncovered the facts that 27 of 39 of his written articles had been completely plagiarized. That they weren't his stuff at all, that he had plagiarized them. And it was clearly obvious that he had done so. And so his career ended on February 29, 2008. And as Gogwine himself admitted, he says, I was guilty as charged. He said, this began a personal crisis unequal to my life, bringing great humiliation on my wife and children, my family and my closest friends, including the President of the United States. And he was devastated. But he wasn't prepared for what was going to happen next. Because before he was going to be kicked out of the White House, President Bush summoned to see him. And so as he went to the White House to face President Bush, once inside the Oval Office, Gogline shut the door, and he turned to the President, and he said, I owe you an... And before he could even use the word apology, Bush looked at him and said, Tim, you are forgiven. And he was speechless. He tried again. He said, but sir... And the President interrupted him with a firm stop, 
And he said, I have known grace and mercy in my life, and believe me, you are forgiven. Gogolin says after a long talk with him that day, a healing process began for him. And that healing process included, and I quote, repentance, reflection, and spiritual growth. Now look at what he says in those words. Give me a click here. He says, political power can lead to pride. That was my sin, 100% pride. But offering and receiving forgiveness is a different kind of strength. That's the kind of strength I want to develop now. You guys have heard me say before that truly getting and experiencing God's grace can change the trajectory of a person's life. This is what I mean by that. This is a guy who was just caught up in Washington politics, got his good education, doing his thing, fell into some pretty bad sin, continued in it for seven years, and then when he was caught, was devastated and humiliated, just like anybody else would be. That's a pretty normal story. What's not normal is to receive grace from the President of the United States. To have somebody say, before you even got the apology out, kind of like the story of the prodigal son, right? Before you even get the the apology out, to say to you, I forgive you. Believe me, I know what grace is about, and you got it from me. And I would suggest to you that that has changed the trajectory of that man's life. As he said, before it was all about pride, now it's about finding strength in my relationship with God and the grace that he gives. And that's what you and I get to bring into the public arena every day as we ride into town. Isn't that cool? Are you seeing how I'm seeing the Palm Sunday story today? Yes, there was a misunderstanding then between material and spiritual. Yes, there was a misunderstanding of what Jesus was literally going to do with Jerusalem that day and what he did with our souls that day. But also don't miss that it was all public. He came into town in a public way. He entered the public arena. And in tow with him were morality and righteousness, truth, all wrapped in the garb of grace and love. And in so doing, that had the power to change the composition of human hearts. Twelve guys who would never be the same, who would go on to give their lives for their faith. And then hundreds, thousands, eventually millions others, including me and you today, all because one guy rode into town with righteousness and truth and grace. And you and I get to do the same thing every week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that this simple story that we all learned in Sunday school years and years ago as we cut out our own palm branches uh, is much richer than we might have realized as it contains a lot of truth, livable truth for us today. And Father, if I don't miss my guess, there's not one person here this morning, there won't be in our other services, who has become a follower of you who also doesn't want to now be the kind of person that you are pleased with, who lives a life that is set apart to you, usable in your hands. And so, God, I pray that as we are challenged today, that as we ride into our own town, as we ride back into Scottsdale, Mesa, Phoenix, Gilbert, wherever we're from, and as we ride into town every day this week, that, God, you would challenge us to ride with your goodness and righteousness deeply embedded in our behavior, with your truth firmly within our minds, and that, God, with your grace and your love, wrapping all of that together in every interaction that we have, that we might show who you are to those around us. 
And God, just as you stirred up that original setting there, causing people to look toward your son and ask, who is this? I pray, God, that as we ride into town in a similar fashion, that you might cause our lost friends and family and work associates and fellow students to be stirred up a bit and to ask, who is this? Who is this that I see represented in you? And may we point them, Lord, to your son, Jesus. God, thank you that you use us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you for this day we can celebrate as Palm Sunday. And we pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.